Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here. And, you know, this is part of the message of Project Cashmere, of this whole podcast, that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paul and those people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night, whatever time of the day it is where you're listening anywhere on planet Earth or indeed anywhere else in the galaxy if you're on the International Space Station listening to Project Kazimierz recorded in February 2017. This is Richard Lucas, your host. Um, Today we've got an amazing guest, the extraordinary Matt Clifford, co-founder of Entrepreneur First, one of the most successful new entrepreneurship and startup support organizations and accelerators started in London now also in Singapore. They've created companies, I think more than 100, with a valuation of more than $500 million. We had a few technical problems in this podcast, meaning that we lost Matt's introduction that he made on the show for us. And instead of that, I've downloaded an introduction he made at another event uh, where he was describing to a different audience the same organisation. I hope you'll be forgiving of that workaround. Apart from that, we also discussed briefly at the beginning of the show CAM Entrepreneurs. Uh, Matt has graciously agreed to be on our advisory board, just bring a bit of additional credibility and status to an already interesting new initiative promoting entrepreneurship among the alumni and students of Cambridge University. Apart from that, Sam Cook, our co-host, my co-host, joins us slightly into the show, asks some interesting questions. But without further ado, sit back and listen to the amazing Matt Clifford of Entrepreneur First. My name's Matt Clifford. I'm uh, the founder and CEO of Entrepreneur First, which is a company that I started with my co-founder, Alice, five years ago to support more of the world's best technologists to start companies. Um, we have built about 100 companies over the last four years. Um, by built, what I mean is we found the founders as individuals. We brought them together. We helped them develop an idea. We invested in those companies, and then we helped grow them. Uh, and those companies today are, are worth about $500 million. This cam, this cam entrepreneurs thing seems to be there's some hint that there's uh, what you might call validation by, you know, if a rapidly growing LinkedIn group is validation for something that's not being promoted, the, it, we've gone up from 30 to 60 to 90 in the last 10 days. And I, I, I'm aware of the fact that that's not the same as traction and revenue, but in, in, in the absence of other data, that's quite, that's quite interesting. 
That's and, great. And we've got our first event on the 23rd of February in the Centre for Entrepreneurs in, in, uh, in Mayfair. I don't know if you know that's... Uh, oh, I do, yeah. That's the... Is that the Legatum Institute? Is that yes, the... that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, my my, my sister-in-law, Christina Adoni, who works for the, worked for the Telegraph, uh, now works for uh, Legatum. Uh, she's had different roles there. And she introduced me to a guy called uh, Matt Smith. Yeah, Matt Smith, I know quite well. Yeah, uh, and because uh, I was casting around for a venue, and you know, I'm not used to the cost of organising things in London, and you know, the prices you get off the street for for venues for 50 people are quite it's quite uh, quite scary. Insane, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so so th- so that's good. And you know, we've got my brother Edward Lucas from the Economist and Peter Cowley. Um, from the uh, from the Cambridge Angels, who's yeah, yeah, I know Peter very well, yeah. Um, so, so we're not we're not short of a sort of celebrity. Also, a guy called Michael Michael Blakey, who oh, I know Michael very well. He's okay. the first person to ever write me a check. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. I I I, I wish I, <laughs> everyone. I keep all these people are more successful than me, <laughs> but they, they say you should hang out with successful people. So, so he he's going to come along. He's going to come along. So I've I've got sort of critical mass of sort of names for the first for the first meeting but if we do a follow-up and you're very welcome to come anyway but if if you if if we can use you as a sort of you know the celebrity attraction for a future event at some <laughs> stage that would be great i'm oh, very happy to help yeah and, and you you would also be well we we have two reasonably large um event spaces in our offices uh in london you'd always be welcome to use those as well Oh, perfect. Well, I'm, I, I, it's quite like, depending on the it's quite, my goal for the first meeting is sustainability. I want to identify sure. a, a, local, a local leader who will not wait for me to do things, but will actually yeah. take, take a lead. And then, I'll, then, then Peter and myself will support the bits out of them. But, but anyway, that, that's, that's, that's a, a sort of, um, a, sort of uh, a challenging side project um, rather than my main my main thing but it's I, I was just chatting to someone in Sydney Sydney Australia this morning and the, the fact that if I if I go there I can launch a branch of cam entrepreneurs as I arrive is, is I mean I, 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 Peter was yeah. saying that you know I don't think the Cambridge alumni office is set up for people setting up global organizations from <laughs> from pre-incorporation but you know in, t- in today's world you know it's simply a lack of experience you know you don't really need a budget you just need to have the mental the mental capacity <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean so I, I what I was doing I was asking you um whether whether that um that uh, feeling of that you wanted to start your business was something you'd had for a while, or it just gradually emerged when you were at McKinsey. Yeah, it's um, you know, what you um, what you said just then really resonated. In that, you know, one idea that I really try and push is that I'm not I'm not fully convinced that entrepreneur being an entrepreneur is sort of something is like a matter of identity. It's something that people are. I think it's more than it's something that people do. Um, uh, you know, entrepreneurship is, is something that you do. And yes, it requires a different skill set from other things. But one idea that I think has been quite damaging in, in sort of the UK context is the idea that, you know, there are born entrepreneurs. And if you're not one of them, then, you know, you might as well not be one. Um, and, and while I fully agree, in fact, I would say I passionately agree with your uh, point that not everyone should be an entrepreneur. Uh, I do think that 
it, we shouldn't, we certainly shouldn't see it as almost like a species of people that you are or you aren't. And I think, you know, w- what occurred to me when I was at McKinsey that made me realize I wanted to start something was that, you know, there, there is this um, long-term secular shift, I think, that uh, in the kinds of technologies that are off, at our fingertips now that allow people really for the first time in history, to build um, for really very little capital products and services that can reach hundreds of millions of people around the world. And it just suddenly occurred to me that, uh, well, not suddenly, I think it was, you know, it it occurred to me over a period of time, you know, reading and engaging with, you know, a lot of uh, material on on entrepreneurship, that it, it was... It, it was an, almost the opportunity of this generation to be involved with. And that I, if I didn't do that, then I would look back and think that that was crazy and a, a, a real missed opportunity. Okay. I know Sam's now messaging he, me. He's here. So I'll just uh, – um, yeah. so, yeah. Sam, you're there. I'm here. Okay, so um, we're, we're, uh, Matt has already introduced his business. Um, I'm now curious if he does it again. Will it be identical or will there be a slightly different version? Matt, Matt are, you fr- are you still there, Matt? I see you. Fr- yeah, still here, yeah. Okay, you're, 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 yeah. Okay, so, um, so yes, you, you had that insight that there was like an unprecedented opportunity. Um, when, when, but on the other hand, when, when you bring people into entrepreneur first you're not necessarily um only accepting you a you're not asking people to have a business idea so the idea that they're ready to go with their scalable you know, their scalable digitally delivered product or service isn't um built into your your system um so you didn't you didn't necessarily mind so so okay maybe I'll, I'll step back a bit so how did that lead you to think that entrepreneur first would be the right thing to do um, I think the, the, the honest answer is that you know, Entrepreneur First was, um, you know, was, was the seed of an idea that seemed um, to combine a lot of the things that Alice and I were excited about and passionate about. Um, but it, what it is today is, you know, it, it really has evolved an awful lot since, since those beginnings. But I always say I think there were two things that we felt most sure about, and those two things I think we've been, we were broadly right on, even though we were probably wrong about nearly everything else. And they did come out of this belief about there being an opportunity. One was this idea that we've already touched on a little bit, which is that talent really, really matters. And if you can find a way to engage particularly hyper-ambitious people uh, in any given activity, then that activity will become um, valuable and important. So that was like the first kind of key principle, I suppose. And the second was that it was because of the way that technology um, was was developing, and in particular that um, the global scale and reach enabled by, by technology, um, that for the first time it was possible for individuals to really jump into this with very little capital and very little infrastructure. And, and I think we did think that both those things were, were true and, and, and they were the core of, of what we started building at EF and they remain the core of what we do today. Okay, but uh, and when you get obviously now you're in this sort of, you know with these sort of billion dollar billion dollar valuations and you know 
in extraordinarily successful exits, you've got your brand, and so it's presumably no longer such a challenge to attract people. But in in the early stages, I'm sure you were both as McKinsey guys or people you were aware of the challenge of credibility in the early days. So how did you... How did you address that? And, and also, in terms of sort of teaching other people or, or giving lessons to other people, you know, when someone's got a grand vision but they haven't yet got the track record to prove that they can do it, how, do, how did you address that? Because I, I, I think that's one of getting things started is one of the most impressive bits of a, of a successful venture. And I'm very curious what you did. Yeah, I mean, the, the early days were extremely scrappy and hand-to-mouth and, you know, really making it up as we go along. And that's what I see in a lot of our best founders actually, you know, on, on Entrepreneur First. I mean, we were very aware of the credibility problem and we, we look for ways to really bootstrap credibility. So um, to some extent that was um, by borrowing brands. So we, you know, we tried to get... Um, you know, I think there was actually a mistake in retrospect, but at the time it seemed like a really smart idea to get lots of corporates on board um, uh, and kind of borrow their brands. Um, we um, spent a ton of time um, just personally meeting uh, the individuals who we thought would be the best fit. So, you know, we probably spent three quarters of our time just going up and down the country meeting kind of students, relatively recent grads, PhD students, etc., and and literally almost doing door-to-door sales on um, why, you know, why we thought that people should come and do this. And in a way, I, you know, by accident, um, I think that turned out to be uh, exactly what we would advise people on our program, which is just go talk to your customers. Stop worrying about all these other things. Just go talk to the people that you really need to engage with and see what they want. And, and, you know, we did do that. And as a result, I think we eventually found the right people and we eventually found, um, you know, people who were really excited about, um, uh, you know, about the, uh, opportunity that we were providing, but it was yeah. I mean, it was it was scrappy and it was painful. Matt, Matt, that was a, a really good point that you just made about talking to your customers. I was just having uh, lunch here in London with with Ash Alley, the uh, chief marketing officer of, of Just Eat, that went public, one of the most successful IPOs. And uh, he sits down with founders all the time, and they they sit there and say to him, "Well, I want to be a billion dollar exit," and that's entirely the wrong question. The entirely wrong, you know, the entirely right question is what problem are you solving for pe- real people in the world? Yeah. And they're going to reward you based on value that you create in the world. How, how much do you find working with startup founders? Is it hard to switch them from what they want and their goals to really thinking about the customer and talking to the customer whose problem they're trying to solve? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, I suppose there's two parts to the way we think about that. One is, to some extent, um, entrepreneurship has become a bit of a badge that people want to have. And therefore, we need to screen um, even before people join us as part of our selection process. So what is the motivation people have in, in, in even getting going? And in general, we're very suspicious of people whose primary goal seems to be sort of internally focused. So if it's like, what can I... Uh, and and don't, don't get me wrong, we, we, we want to fund for-profit companies that make a ton of money, but we find that they're just not very usually started by people whose goal is to 
make a ton of money. Um, I think you do, you know, so we, we screen for, yeah, I mean, you know, I think this is really important. You know, we, we always say it's three things. It's, it's scale, scope, and cost. And, and what we mean by that is that if you start from the idea, which I think is probably not that controversial, that ambitious people are really looking to have impact one way or another, um, whether that means making a lot of money or whether it means solving an important problem. Um, scale, scope, and cost matter hugely for impact. So one scale, what do I mean by that? Well, as you've already kind of hinted at, the, the, the simple truth is that impact increases with the number of people you can reach. So if you developed a product or a service that can reach, um, you know, that has to be delivered manually, then that limits the scope of your impact to the number of people that you can meet uh, in a lifetime. If you build a product or a service that can be delivered over a mobile phone, then that means you can reach a couple of billion people and, you know, probably in 10 years, four or five billion people. And, and that's relatively new. You know, kind of 20 years ago, it was really, really hard to reach a billion people with anything. Um, and, and that's a big change. And, and, you know, mobile is obviously a big part of that. But just generally, the, you know, the rise of, of, of consumer internet as being, you know, a totally seamless, integrated part of life. Um, that means that, you know, there's an inherent scalability in technology entrepreneurship that is new. Um, scope, what I mean by that is that I think if you look historically, um, when people talked about technology companies, they thought of highly specialized, um, perhaps sort of heavy um, uh, technical uh, companies that, that, you know, that were sort of like not household names by any stretch of the imagination. I think what's interesting today, um, you know, to steal someone else's line, I, I can't remember who it, whose it is, you know, every company is a technology company. It almost makes as much sense to talk about technology companies as it does to talk about electricities of companies that use electricity. And so when I say scope, what I mean is that almost any interest that a person has now, almost any passion or kind of approach, um, problem they want to solve, technology entrepreneurship can be part of the solution. Uh, and, you know, the, the clearest illustration of this is, you know, if, if 10 years ago, certainly 15 years ago, you'd have told people that the world's most important taxi company and the world's most important hospitality company would be software companies, technology companies. That would have seemed very, very strange. And yet, when we think of Uber and Airbnb today, it's very obvious that you know that's part of their identity. So I think the scope of what's possible through technology entrepreneurship has changed. And finally, cost. Um, you know, if you talk to anyone who built a um, you know, web 1.0 uh, company that scaled, they always talk about the you know, sheer size of the startup costs. You know, you just talk about people physically having to buy servers um, for their for their products to services to run on. You know, today Amazon, Microsoft, Google will pay you to use their cloud service. Um, the kind of cost dynamic has shifted hugely in the setup. Phase. Similarly, the rise in accessibility of open source software um, reduces the barriers to entry to get to the cutting edge of open source. And so what you really see is that for a, for a certain type of person with the skill set um, for actually building things, you know, they, they don't need to raise a lot of capital to buy the means of production. They are the means of production. And so if you take those three sort of mega trends together, scale, um, the, the availability of scale, the increasing um, scope of, of what technology entrepreneurship is about and the falling cost, you, you really do see that, um, 
it's not really a bubble that we're seeing in entrepreneurship. It's a quite rational response to changes in supply and demand of, of the key resources. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks for that. And, and you know, I, again, I will post a link, which is, you've got some very nice charts and graphs and things which illustrate that, that, that I think it, it, I'd encourage anyone who finds what Matt's saying interesting to, to dig a bit deeper because it's very compelling. And, you know, you're certainly not the only person who's put these ideas out, but de- deploying them together with entrepreneur first makes a lot of sense. Um, what, one thing I noticed is that, you, and I think it's in a blog post you've recently published, you talked about the varying the diversity of the people coming into the program, that people imagine that uh, you're going to have young graduates coming in, and a, a lot of the people coming into your program are not young graduates. Can you, t- yes. um, can you talk about... Um, it, it's changed a lot, and this, this is one, one big change since the beginning. We, um, you know, we start very much almost as a graduate program, and, and we did position ourselves as such, and you know, we spent a lot of time visiting universities and you know, speaking to people who were about to graduate. And, um, you know, that, that actually did work rather well for us, you know, for the first couple of years. But really, just as we went, we were getting more and more applications from people who didn't, you know, kind of um, uh, fit that category. And, and you know, we started experimenting with taking more people you know, from a broader range of backgrounds, um, certainly from a broader range of experiences. And we had very, very strong results with with kind of professionals who were, you know, uh, had a bit more experience with people who uh, had more academic experience. And so over time, what we've done is really built up a fairly strong data set um, that suggests to us that although we'll always have room for exceptional graduates, you know, what we're really looking for is uh, an idea that we call edge. So what, what edge means for us is we look, because we're starting pre-idea, um, what we're looking for is people who have, um, even if they don't have an idea, they have an edge, they have a source of personal competitive advantage that makes them suited to starting, you know, uh, some sort of technology company. And there are three kinds of edges in particular that we care about. One is people who have what we call a technical edge. So they, they have uh, either a deep background or deep skill, deep experience in a, in a particular technology, which means that we think they have a competitive advantage of applying that tele- technology to solve problems. We've had a lot of success with people um, of that background. Um, Second edge we look at um, that we're you know, really uh, keen to work with is a domain edge. Someone with a domain edge has, again, kind of skills, experience, background in a particular either sector of the economy, a uh, particular industry, um, particular function of, um, of a company, and really understands uh, how that domain works and the challenges and limitations of it, and usually has a specific idea about how it can be improved. And, you know, we've had a lot of success with people with that domain edge. And then the third edge is um, is what we call product edge. And these are people who have very, very strong experience building products, technology products from scratch and, and actually getting them out the door, shipping them, uh, improving them. And we've also found that people with that background do, do very well. And so w- what we say now is we, we really don't care about a person's age. We really don't care about, you know, whether they've got zero years working experience or 20 years working experience. What we want is evidence that they really have thought about what sort of edge they might have uh, and that they can demonstrate that edge uh, for us. Um, And as we have um, moved to that model, we found that it's actually really improved our results. 
Excellent. That, that's really, really interesting because, um, and you know, even if someone's not looking to do what entrepreneur first is doing, you suppose you're an angel investor or considering, or you're an entrepreneur thinking about your own business ideas, thinking about what you're good at uh, is another way and and what you're good at that's a bit hard to replicate and you know that domain expertise it's like you know simply having someone in the team and I suppose it's services for grave diggers and undertakers so someone someone who knows there's a huge problem that no one else knows about that you only know about you only know about if that's what you do Tim Jackson who I know is one of your partner one of your general Mm. partners had a has a company it's called something like Articheck which is um helping with shipping fine art between museums and there's a whole documentation process at the beginning and end to do with checking that you know that statue you send off is in good the same condition when it's arrived which has to be done by art experts and the, the founder is someone who just was working in a museum and just saw how extraordinarily inefficient that whole process process was what a headache it was and you know that was clearly the edge and i don't know whether i and, and you know that seemed to be very compelling um, you've obviously must have quite a, an efficient recruitment process. Have, did you look at other high volume accelerators like I don't know Y Combinator or people like that to see how they did it to figure out how you were going to process so many candidates? Because if you've taken a hundred, you must interview what five hundred, a thousand. Okay, the second question, and then I was just going to say this is something that can generally be true for entrepreneurs, even if they're not doing what you do. It's always a good thing in self-analysis to think about what you're, what you're good at, what your edge is. Um, but I want to come back to how you recruit people into the program. Did you look at, I was asking about, you know, do you look at the way people like Y Combinator operate, or what's your process to... A, get people to apply in the first place, and B, how do you screen them? Because you must have got quite, you must have, it must be something that you need to be good at in order to be successful. And how, where did you get your expertise? Was it gut or did you like bring in experienced recruiters? Yeah, I mean, it's something that's changed uh, again a lot over time. I mean, people often draw the analogy with, with Y Combinator, you know, which, we're, which we're, you know, we're huge fans of, and, and, and other accelerators. But what we do in terms of recruitment is really very different from, um, from, from them or anyone else in that we're not looking for companies, we're looking for individuals. So in a way, we're structured from a recruitment perspective more like a, you know, more like a headhunter. Um, so we, um, the way we think about recruitment is, is twofold. One is that because of this cultural gap that we're describing, um, in ter- that I described right at the very beginning around, do people even think of entrepreneurship as an option? We can't assume that the best people for our program are necessarily looking. Um, so we actually invest a huge amount of resource in trying to find them. So we have about 10 people working full-time on finding the world's best talent and actively encouraging them and supporting them to apply to our program. Um, we have a second idea, which is related but important, which is great people know great people. I mean, you said that right at the start, actually, um, Richard. And so one of the things we do and spend a lot of time on is uh, working with our alumni and our, and our cohorts to find uh, referrals, really, people who they think we should work with. Um, so that's that's the second important part of where we work, and the third is we do encourage and we do get an awful lot of organic inbound applications, um, and we do a lot of you know kind of traditional recruitment marketing to do that. So events, um, uh, partnerships, adverts, etc. 
So that's how we kind of fill the top of the funnel, if you like. In terms of how we select, which I think was the second part of your question, um, the truth is early on, we, you know, we, we obviously, we were new to this. And in fact, everyone was new to this because picking founders before their founders is a very unusual thing. Um, so we did rely a lot on external um, support. We invited um, entrepreneurs and investors to come and help us select. Um, but over time, we've developed, um, we've got a huge amount of data on this now. You know, we've, we've interviewed literally thousands and thousands of individuals to, to get to the cohorts we've had through the program. And so we're starting to build a pretty strong sense of what we're looking for. So we, um, we have a very structured interview and selection process that involves both uh, technical interviews, founder-based interviews, there's a technical test. Um, there's a demonstration. Uh, there's, there's, all, there's all sorts of inputs, and we now, um, you know, we, we, we like to think that we're pretty good at knowing what we're looking for. Um, it's in fact today is the selection day at uh, uh, Entrepreneur First. So immediately after the podcast, I'm heading to go do some interviews, and you know, I have to say it's one of the parts of the job I most enjoy. Mm-hmm. And you've described it. So, uh, but. Uh, do you use um, video on demand? Uh, so you have asynchronous people record, upload. Uh, come, apparently, Penguin Random House, who actually they're not the they're not the black sheep. I think Pearson had a huge bad result going out in the media yesterday, and they think they're going to sell Penguin Random House, or it was possibly Penguin Random House that had a vast revenue drop just in this last quarter. But they, I heard a BBC podcast about them that they've stop looking at CVs entirely and they're using video on demand recruitments which means that at any stage of the day or night candidates can interview against pre-recorded questions um, you know given the, the Penguin Random House are in trouble maybe it's you know it's I shouldn't necessarily <laughs> quoting them as a, an example but do you use a lot of technical tools to try and make the workflow more efficient or is it more the soft side that you're strong on? So, so I'd like to think we do both. So we we, we build a lot. We know, one thing that not a lot of people know about um, EF is that we actually have an in-house technology team that builds tools and systems uh, for us to scale what we do. So um, when people apply initially online, um, that goes into our, you know, our, so we call it the talent dashboard, and we're able to get a snapshot view based on the, you know, the kind of data signals that we look for on, on kind of, a rough sense of how promising a candidate is likely to be, and that allows us to triage our, our efforts quite quite significantly. Um, we um, part of the application process does involve or can involve, depending on where people are applying from and how likely they are to be able to come in person, uh, a video submission. Um, and that um, you know that we do look at. We don't automate looking at that, um, at least not at this stage. We we watch those and and, and and grade them manually. But we do have a one automated component, which is a technical test, which is automatically graded, and that has been very helpful for us. Less in rooting people out and more in flagging people who might not come across so well in an interview, but actually have some exceptional skills. Okay. Okay. We I, I, we scheduled an hour for this, and it's a quarter to two. So we've just got, I guess, another fifteen minutes for this. Is that correct? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm just scanning it because I want to give Sam a, a chance to an, answer a few more questions. The one thing that I, I, so I don't lose this is oh, you've obviously opened up in Singapore. I wonder if your, your first investor might have something to do with that, that, Michael Blakey. But would you consider coming into another European country like, like Poland? And, and, and although I said I don't really want to talk about politics, do recent developments in British politics mean that you might have to relocate to somewhere? It's easier for foreigners to come and live and work. Um, so Singapore, um, yeah, we, we've had a. You know, the, if you if you really look, zoom right out and think about what is EF about. Um, as I said, it's about making um, this idea of building a technology company the number one career choice for the world's most ambitious people. And, um, you know, in London, that made a ton of sense because you had an amazing talent pool in the UK and, as you say, kind of in, in Europe. And yet you had what I would call an underdeveloped ecosystem and an ecosystem where there was still an awful lot of room for, um, for growth. And so persuading people that maybe they should, you know, come start technology companies made a lot of sense. When we started to think about international growth, it became clear that actually Singapore was in a very interesting position in that, you know, you have a very, very well-educated, very international, um, very ambitious group of people who historically have really not looked at all at technology companies as being a, you know, a, a sensible career path. And so it, it sort of feels, uh, and you know, I feel it's starting to become vindicated, that, that actually there's a huge opportunity in working in that area of the world, with Singapore really as a hub. Um, you know, so roughly uh, about thirty percent of the people who join our program in Singapore are Singaporean. Um, so, you know, Singapore makes a lot of sense for us as as a kind of gateway to an incredible talent pool uh, in Southeast Asia. I think it is an open question whether and how long London will remain the most appropriate gateway to um, the equivalent talent pool in Europe. Um, you know, Brexit is something that. You know, we, we were, I think none of us at EF uh, were, were hoping for. Um, it's something that, you know, we, we remain sort of uh, concerned about. I, you know, I think EF as a business is very robust to things like Brexit. But it, but it's certainly true that if it, if it became clear that it was very hard to, um, if it, it was going to be very, very hard to access the town that we do today in the UK from all of Europe, then I, um, then yeah, I mean, I think we certainly would look at you know alternative solutions for that. Um, you know, that said, I'm optimistic that um, you know, although it's certainly not what I would have chosen, the flavour of Brexit that um, that we seem to be moving for is at least um, outward looking um, in its uh, uh, in its kind of uh, tone. And so, you know, my hope is that, you know, whether or not I think it's the right thing for the country, the tech sector will um, benefit from a more, sorry, a more global um, perspective on, uh, on talent. So, you know, if, if I were to look at, you know, pure, you know, ignoring, you know, I, I was a passionate supporter of, of Remain, um, but ignoring that for a moment and thinking purely self-interestedly about the tech sector in, in the UK and access to talent, Membership of the EU has given us an extraordinary opportunity to be a magnet for talent across Europe who, uh, who are able to move here with really very little or no friction, and that's been amazing. Um, my hope would be that if, if we were to um, 
have a flavour of Brexit that is that is still very global and open in its output, then it may even be that Britain can benefit from those inflows, not just from Europe, but from the rest of the world. And, you know, things like Britain's exceptional talent visa and its entrepreneur visa have made that um, less, uh, have, have less friction than it used to. So my hope is that we'll see an extension of that, even in the face of Brexit, which may allow us to access, you know, talent from from further afield. But, you know, it's, it's certainly a challenging time for everyone, and particularly those who also have talent, talent-based businesses. Yeah, I mean, my, I, I'm, because I, I lived in Poland, I've been in Poland for almost 27 years, and I sort of remember 15 years before the European Union and the last 13 years since, I, I think one of the disadvantages of, in, of, of the current British discourse is people don't remember life outside the European Union, so they don't have that visceral comparison of, you know, even things like you've got a sample, you know, some PCB coming in from Tokyo or Singapore, just it being held for three or four days on the border yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. and also this idea that you know the the, pro, the 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 threshold for someone to come you know coming over seeing coming over for an interview if you ever all the, doc, the although uh, I mean put it like this my ex-wife is Polish and I I, I remember the visa regime pre-European mm. Union and I, it is anything like it, it it is for non-EU citizens now it's going to it's going to make it tremendous challenge to recruit people but that but that's that's um that's that's uh, not not the main thrust of this. Um, to, uh, Sam seems to have disappeared now, so I'll 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 just keep going. That uh, do do you your outreach? You mentioned you've got ten people going out to to sort of promote entrepreneurship. Um, potentially, I, I'm quite as you know, I'm quite active in that space. So potentially there'll be someone in your team who I could work with who might who might be interested in trying to get into places where very brainy people are to 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 beat the EF drum. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we, we go uh, everywhere and, and anywhere to, uh, to find great talent, absolutely. Okay, I'll, I'll come back to you on that because I've got some ideas, but possibly not to do online. Sam, Sam I'll give you the last uh, five minutes before we wrap this because, um, as, as you know, Matt's an incredibly busy guy and he's already given us an hour of his time, which possibly is more money than <laughs> you normally get given in an hour. <laughs> so, Sam, Sam, over to you. Well, Matt, um, just just from a you've, you've had a bit of a global perspective on engineering talent, um, and you know you you obviously have had the advantage of people wanting to come to London. If if you were to look globally across the engineering talent pool, where do you see the biggest hotbeds of of just raw uh, programming ability? Um, I, I know things that I've heard, and I know why I'm in in Poland from from my perspective, but you know, what are you seeing uh, in terms of engineering uh, talent and creativity? If, if someone were to listen to this and say, yeah, I want to make a move from an expensive place like the United States to, to Europe, uh, where would you be setting your sights if you're in that position? Yeah, I mean, I think what's, what's fascinating is that um, we have found extraordinary talent all over Europe. You know, I think um, one... One mistake people make, I think, is thinking that because Silicon Valley has had the most successful technology companies, then it must be where all the talent is. And, you know, I, I think that's not true at all. Um, we, I mean, it's very difficult for me to name a single country. I mean, I think there are certain places that we think are magnets for talent um, from all over the world and are very exciting because of that. Um, and I think, you know, we often think in terms of universities or university towns. 
Um, you know, one of the reasons that we remain very bullish on the UK, despite some of the challenges, is that in the shape of Oxford, Cambridge and Imperial, I think you have three of the biggest sort of talent magnets uh, in the world. Um, there are others in Europe, you know, we're very excited to do a lot of work at ETH in Zurich. Um, I think that is a extraordinary magnet for talent all over Europe. Um, we, you know, it's why we went to Singapore. I think it's, you know, by far the, the best talent magnet in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, to pick a couple of com uh, countries, not at random, but where, you know, we've had particular success. Um, we've worked with some amazing Lithuanians um, and see, um, you know, real strength in depth in the sort of technical um, talent bench there. Um, similarly, Romania. Um, do a lot of work in um, uh, in, in our Singapore office. Uh, understandably, you know, China and India are the two biggest um, sources of talent after Singapore there. But, you know, we're also seeing amazing talent in, in maybe less well, um, immediately thought of countries like, like Vietnam and Thailand. Um, but I think what is, you know, I suppose my overall point would be that for, you know, visas notwithstanding, um, it is increasingly plausible that wherever you're born in the world, if you have the talent, you have the ambition, um, it is actually possible to contribute, you know, to the sort of global tech ecosystem. And, you know, that's a very exciting, um, that's a very exciting possibility. Well, that, that, that's, uh, that's um, very, uh, what's the word? I think it's quite good for our, for our Polish listeners and, you know, a good chunk of our audience is local to realise that someone who's got no particular axe to grind, totally independent, doesn't feel that Poland is necessarily... Uh, I, I, I very much think that no-one should take life for granted, no-one should take, take their, their business for granted, and, you know, a lot of people here feel that... And when Google came to Krakow, they said they came for the talent, not the, not the, the low wages, but... We, I, mean, I, I think it's extremely important for people to realise this last point that you know, if you're talented, you have unprecedented opportunities to reach a global audience, no matter where you're from. Absolutely. I uh, strongly, strongly agree. Okay, um, what, what, what's coming next? Uh, uh, where, where will where will you take this? Do you have a do you have a sort of per is it so, is the ride so exciting that you'll just carry on for the time being, or do you do you have like a five year plan or a three year plan or a ten year plan? Well, you know, I think we we think of this as being a, a very, very, very long term project. You know, I, I this. I mean, it is a company and it's structured like a company, but, you know, we talk about exits earlier. You know, House and I didn't build this to try and sell it, you know, a few years later. And, you know, it's very hard for us to imagine that, you know, kind of wanting to get into that sort of model. Um, you know, we really think of this as more like an institution than, than as a company. And, you know, what we mean by that is, you know, it, it's very striking to, to me, if you look at the history of companies, companies are very fragile and they die. And, you know, very, very few companies that are important today were important 100 years ago. Um, but what's interesting is that um, there's a category of institution for which that's not true, that's very obvious, and that's universities. And, you know, very many of the most important universities today were very important um, uh, 100 years ago. And I'm not saying that we want to turn the EF into a university, I, and that's never going to happen. But we, we like to think with that time horizon of what would it take for EF to be an important institution uh, in 100 years. And so the way we think about it is, well, the, the key, you know, why, why do universities last? Well, because they, um, 
you know, they engage uh, ambitious, talented people uh, at this uh, formative point in their careers, and then they engage them for the rest of their lives. And, and because of that, EF is obsessed with talent, as you can probably tell, because they've used the word about a hundred times in the last hour. But we're also obsessed with our alumni, and how do we, how do we, be, how can we make sure that we're a relevant and important institution in their lives long after they graduate from EF? So what that means in total is that you know our, our five-year plan is you know we, we want to be the world's number one destination for uh, ambitious technical talent and um, you know I think that's totally achievable um, and in doing so we hope we can build something that's really really lasting. Uh, I, th- I think you're certainly on the way. And I, I, I think. Uh, um it, uh, what are they called? Y Combinator Sam Altman did a how to start a startup how to start a startup course online a couple of years ago. I remember we we hosted a viewing party or something like that in one of our co working centres. Do you do you anticipate like opening up the way you your program so that people who don't can't join the program can benefit from it and so that as it were the sort of the TED model that the people in the program get extra support and the people where people can get access to it online or would that slightly damage your business model because you you might be giving away too much to people who you're not invested in. We're very we're very keen on um, very keen on sort of opening up our, our knowledge and what we've learned. And you know, if you go on our um, if you go on our medium page, uh, medium.com slash um, uh, entrepreneur first, I think um, it's very easy to find. Um, you know, Alice in particular, my co-founder, has written an awful lot on how we build teams, how we generate ideas. This this idea of edge, which we've already um, uh, talked about, uh, you know, we're very, very uh, keen on on, on opening that up because I think it's, you know, I'm slightly biased, but now that you know, entrepreneur first, at least in London, is relatively mainstream. I think it's really easy to miss how um, convinced people were five years ago that it was a totally crazy idea, and the reason that they were convinced is that generally has been accepted that it's impossible to build teams from scratch for startups and that ideally you want you know you're you want to invest in companies that uh where the founders have known each other for like 20 years and you know we're really excited about what it means if that piece of conventional wisdom is wrong because assuming that startups are valuable and um, and we think they are then if you can take the friction out of their creation uh, and we think that's what ultimately ef is about then you, you can prepare for a world with vastly more startups and you know we don't need to capture a very large proportion of the value of that um, transformation in order for EF to you know kind of make a living so we're very very keen on opening up what we think we've learned from from doing this for the last you know kind of five years or so okay well Matt just 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 on that last point Richard and I'll I'll kind of close it out here Uh, great great model and I I think that um, past relationships can be the biggest barriers to growth and in new startups due to you know lingering issues outside of business between between founders and I know from being in the army that they made us do that they would bring in all kinds of people from all over the world and and make you build a unit from scratch and make it work so your models been proven in, in other industries uh, or other fields that I think make it actually potentially even a better model than the traditional one of past relationships uh, going into business together so I, I think that's uh, great, great initiative. Look forward to seeing how it grows. Um, so I think that's all we've got for today, Richard, all the time we have with Matt. And Matt, thank you very much from uh, Project Cash Managed and our listeners to uh, for uh, contributing your insights to this uh, global movement towards entrepreneurship that solves real problems for real people. And 
Uh, I know that everyone will benefit from the insights you've gained, and if you happen to be in London or thinking about going to London, uh, they certainly know where to go to uh, uh, continue their education uh, <laughs> and their journey towards being startup, uh, startup founders or entrepreneurs, as we call them. Uh, so thank you again for, uh, on behalf of myself, Richard, and other Project Cashmere listeners for joining us today. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much. Really enjoyed that and um, look forward to um, catching up soon. Okay. Thanks very much, then. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks, well, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Cashmere, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectcashmere.com or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectcashmere.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber with audio editing by Juan Wally. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals. It's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other. Sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here. And in this connected world, we don't need everyone here. But, but the, the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now, not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger, 